Well, good evening again. It's lovely to be with you, and thank you again for your invitation. Uh, we're going to uh, worship God together as we read in the scriptures, as we begin our service. I wonder if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter, which is a long chapter, um, but it's a, a wonderful vision of um, the throne room in heaven, and we see um, this vision of a lamb. And the lamb, of course, if you know the book of Revelation, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be thinking this evening about the greatness of Christ and the work of Christ and the glory of Christ. And so I think it's fitting that we begin in Revelation 5 and see what John records for us there. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one under heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue, a people and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And every living creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them. I heard saying blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. We're going to be looking together this evening at the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Philippians. I'm going to be preaching from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. But I'd like us to begin our reading in chapter 1 and verse 27. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. 
Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know if you saw the documentary that was shown over Christmas, I think it was, and New Year, where they were recording the events leading up to the coronation of the king. If you uh, remember, uh, there were... um, various uh, aspects to what they were preparing but there was one element that particularly took my attention it was when the uh, royal photographer Hugo Bernard Bernard sorry Hugo Bernard was preparing to take a picture of his majesty the king and her majesty the queen and they were doing it ahead of the coronation it was a spring early summer day And he only had a few minutes in the royal diary, because they're busy people. But he spent a whole day getting ready to take the picture. He was set up in one of the staterooms in Buckingham Palace. He had lighting he'd set up. He used models 
to stand there so that he could get exactly the right angle, exactly the right light, exactly the right background, you know, pl- no plants coming out of their heads and things or pillars in there behind them in that sense. It was astonishing how careful he was. And the reason he was doing it, you could really sense in him that he felt the significance of what he was doing. He was capturing the king and the queen. It was important he got it right. And he only had a few minutes to do it. And as I was preparing to preach on this passage in 2 Corinthians, sorry, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, I felt something of a similar kind of feeling. Because as perhaps we all know, this is a majestic passage, isn't it? It's an amazing passage because in these verses, God is giving us a precious insight into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in just a few brief lines, what riches there are, what amazing truths there are. We could just dwell on phrases, couldn't we, for a whole evening? And just chew them over and think of the riches that are here. So I was working through it thinking, well, how can, we, how can we do justice to this? And on one level, we could just say, let's just read it and say, amen. Thank you, Lord, for, for such truth. But we're going to dig into the detail. And one thing that helped me as I was preparing this was one uh, commentator who made the point that whilst these passage, this passage, these verses, verses 5 to 11, are truly majestic and glorious, they're not given so that we might just gaze upon them as we think of Christ and all that he is and all that he has done. They're given for a very specific purpose so that something might happen in us. There's an intention that Paul has in including these words where he does in the book of Philippians. And what we see is that Paul is holding up Christ's example, verse 5, so that we might have the same mind as the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say that we might think like Christ so that... We might have unity as God's people. That's the big concern as he is working through this section in Philippians. We started in verse 27 because the big idea of this section is there in the start of verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it's about living a worthy life. And a key element of living a worthy life is to be a united people. And so Paul says... That he longs to either see them or hear that they are standing fast in, look at the words, one spirit with one mind, verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear all the, the ones and the togethers there in, those, in that verse? And then in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, there's all these, um, these strong appeals to unity. So he says, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. It's, it's all this oneness and this, all this sense of, of the way in which we're going to have this unity of the people of God is, verse 3 and 4, to put away selfish ambition and conceit or vainglory, as other translations have it, to esteem others better than ourselves, end of verse 3, and to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now you might wonder, why is unity so important to Paul here in Philippians? Well, it seems it's because in chapter 4 and verse 2, he gets to a specific situation that he's concerned about in the Philippian church because he says, I implore Judea and I implore Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, those Greek names are both female names. So it seems that two women in the church in Philippi are in conflict with each other. And their conflict is so serious that Paul pauses in his letter and indeed addresses a subject of unity in this letter so that they might come together and be of one mind. Now friends, that's a reminder, is it not, that personal conflicts within the church are not personal conflicts. (laughs) It means that even when we have conflicts with each other, as we will, because we're sinners... Those conflicts have implications for the church because we're connected together as believers. We're united in the Lord Jesus Christ, but when there's friction and when there's fallout, if we don't address that, that can get worse and worse and worse and really affect the church. But of course, the problem is that we have hard hearts. The problem is that we are inward focused. We just think about our own interests. We are selfish and just look after number one. And so God says to us, you need to live differently. And to help us to see how we can live differently. In chapter two and verse one, there are some wonderful reminders of all that we have In Christ. Look down at that verse. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, it's all reminding us of all that Christ has done for us, of how we know consolation, of how we know comfort in His love, of how we know fellowship in the Spirit, of how we know affection and mercy, all from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, That kind of verse is a verse that it's so much warmth there that it melts our cold, selfish hearts, doesn't it? But he doesn't stop there. Because not only does Paul point to all the goodness of Christ to them, in verse 1 there, in trying to bring them together to have humility that will bring about unity. He also turns in verse 5 to 11... To ask them to learn from Christ's example in his mindset and attitude. So in verse 5 he says, let this mind be in you, 
which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is doing here, it's important to see what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying we are to think, we are to have the same attitude as the Lord Jesus Christ as we look at his willingness to obey the plan of God the Father. And he's made this strong call, this strong command to be united, to be humble. And he's going to say, you need to obey that command to be humble and united, just like Christ obeyed the will of the Father in coming into this world for your salvation. So if we are to have the mindset of Christ, if we are to think like the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we need to do Two things. We need to look at what Jesus did. And that we're going to see is the first point. It's in verses 5 to 8. And then we're going to see what the Father did for Jesus. And see what we can learn there in verses 9 to 11. That will be our second point. But we're going to begin by looking at what Jesus did. Because of course, if you want to know how someone thinks. And if you want to know what's going on in someone's mind. You look at their actions, don't you? And so Paul says, look at what Jesus did. Think like Christ. And notice that in verse 6, we begin by noticing, look, look at what Jesus did, our first point, And we notice his great position. His great position. Because he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, that's Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God. So the first question that Paul is addressing is who is Jesus Christ? That is the biggest question before our world, is it not? Or one of the big questions before us as a world. Who is Christ? Who are we? How is our sin dealt with? And as Paul tells us who Jesus Christ is, notice he says that he is in the form of God. Other versions have in very nature God. And what's being communicated here is that Jesus Christ is fully God. That he is not lacking in, in his identity as God in any way whatsoever. He is fully God. But notice also that because he is fully God, he is equal to God the Father. Because as Paul continues, he says, Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So he's saying Jesus Christ is fully equal to God the Father. That is to say, he did not just appear to be divine. He did not just have the attributes of divinity. He was divine and is divine. And he has all of the attributes and characteristics of the one true and living God. Because as the Bible declares it to us, our God is a triune God. He is Father, Son and Spirit. And each of the three persons is fully God and equal to each other. So, we do not believe, as Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that Jesus just appeared to be God. Or that Jesus was merely the Son of God, and so in that, less than God. 
as they say. We say no. Look at verse 6. He is in the form of God and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And here Paul is reminding us that Jesus begins in what he did from the very highest place. There is no greater position than to be God. That is the position of Jesus Christ. But then what did he do? Well, he began in this great position, but then we see his great humiliation. We continue to think of what Jesus did. And we see in verse 6 that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal um, because it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So here we're seeing that, that Jesus didn't use his great position fully equal to the Father. He didn't rely upon that and use the benefits that would come from that status because he was willing, verse 7, to make himself of no reputation. He was willing to humble himself. Now we need to think really carefully about this. It is not that in his incarnation, in his coming into this world, that he lost anything of his divinity. But rather, he humbled himself he made himself of no reputation because he was willing to be a bond servant he was willing to be a servant to the will of the father he didn't stand upon the rights of his own position though he was co-equal and is co-equal with the father but instead he willingly submitted to the plan of the father to save Here we're getting an insight into the astonishing truth the Bible teaches us. That our salvation was a work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit planned before before the world began in eternity past. That God the Father purposed to save a people. That God the Son willingly came into the world to bring about that salvation through his death. That God the Spirit enabled the Son in his humanity to fulfill that purpose. And then God the Spirit was sent from the Father and the Son into the world so that he might bring about salvation in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. That's what we're seeing here. That the Son was willing To follow the plan and purpose of the Father. And so he took the form of a bondservant. He served the plan of the Father. The plan of the Father that we might read of in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Where we read in him. Also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's God the Father who predestines, that is to say, he works his plan of salvation that he is going to save Christians, believers, his people. And if you're a Christian today, you rejoice in the fact that you have been chosen before the foundation of the world to belong to God. 
And God the Son willingly came to fulfil that purpose of the Father. Now, now notice here that here we see what true servanthood looks like. True servanthood is not first and foremost to serve other people. True servanthood is to do what? It is to serve the will of God. It is to submit to the plan of God. There is much said in our day about servant leadership. Maybe you hear people talk about that, and that's a helpful term at times. We look for servant leadership, and as you pray for a church and you're praying for a pastor, I'm sure you're praying for a servant-hearted pastor. But what will that look like first and foremost? Well, it will not look like, first of all, that he serves people. It will look, first of all, that he is a man who serves God. And because he serves God, he loves people. Because he serves God, he cares for people. But get the servanthood in the right order. We serve God first and foremost. That's true servant leadership. And because the son was willing to leave the highest place... To serve the will of God, this is his mindset, I'm going to serve the will of God. His servant-hearted submission means three steps, and Paul traces us for those, traces them for us in verses 7 and 8. So we're here, we're, we're looking, we're still looking at what Jesus did, and we're going to see three steps in the humiliation, in the servanthood of the Son. And notice the first is, step one, he becomes a man. Look at verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. So the first step is that Jesus Christ becomes a man, that he was made in human likeness. So the Bible teaches us that means that he took a fully human nature. He didn't just appear to be a human pretending to be a human. That wasn't the case. He really was a true human being. He became a human being when he was conceived in Mary's womb. And so we can say he had and has this day a real human body. A beating human heart. Human DNA. Not losing anything of his divine nature, but adding to it a human nature. And not in taking that human nature, having anything of the sinfulness of Adam's humanity coming into him. Because he's protected from that. He doesn't have the sinful nature of Adam, but he has a full human nature. And think what that means, friends. It mean, it meant and it mean it meant that he would experience frailty. He would experience tiredness, as you and I feel, perhaps are even feeling right now as the day is coming to the end. He experienced feeling sleepy. He experienced The limitations in his humanity that we all know. He knew hunger. Tiredness. He knew human weakness. 
sickness, suffering and pain. He became a man. The first step in his servant-hearted submission to the plan of God. But then step two is that he was obedient to the point of death. That's in the second half of verse 8. We read, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Now, what's this saying? Well, this is saying that all of Jesus' life was a life of full obedience to the plan of God. He obeyed the will of God. He obeyed the law of God, the Ten Commandments, in every aspect, in his words, in his deeds, And in his thoughts as well, because he's the perfect man. And he obeys God to the very fullest extent, to the ultimate point of obedience, and the ultimate act of obedience, which is, of course, death. You know, we sometimes read of of wicked circumstances in um, cults, where human leaders call the members of their cult... So the ultimate act of obedience, which is what? Well, it's suicide, isn't it? And that's a wicked thing. That's a horrible thing in those cults. But because our sin was so great, because we needed a substitute to die in our place so that we would not die, Jesus had to die. Such was his obedience To God's plan. And is it not friends. The ultimate humiliation. For the eternal. And infinite God. To die. And yet Jesus Christ. Went through that. He was obedient. To death. But then there's a second. There's a third step. He went further still. He became a man. Step one. He was obedient to the point of death. Step two. But then thirdly. Even death on the cross. He was obedient and, he, descent, and he, he obeyed the will of God even to death on the cross. And here, notice Paul says he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a, there's an, there's a, an emphasis here that Paul wants us to see. And I think what he's highlighting here, which we might miss because of the distance and And difference that we have because we don't live in that culture. The cross to die by crucifixion was a shameful thing. It was a public shameful spectacle. To hang on the cross and die. It was the form of death reserved for the most evil of criminals. It was reserved for those whose actions were so wicked that it was necessary that the Roman state put them to death. And it was a shameful way to die. You know, nowadays, there's nothing wrong with this, I think, but nowadays sometimes people wear crosses around their necks, don't they? And maybe they're gold or they're silver. And as you think of the crosses that people might wear around their necks, well, they are... Nice, pretty, shiny, smooth crosses. That wasn't Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross was made of rough wood. Jesus' cross 
had cheap iron nails driven through his hands and his feet. Jesus' cross had a crown of thorns placed on his head. You know, in terms of the shame, it's almost like dying by the guillotine. But of course, that's a quick way to die. And his death took hours. Who would wear a guillotine today? We wouldn't do it, would we? But that was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And why did he die on the cross, friends? He didn't die primarily just to identify with others who had died in that way. It wasn't why he died. He didn't die even primarily to be a a picture of sacrifice so as to motivate us to sacrifice as some would teach. The reason Jesus died was to save us from the death that we deserve. We have some good friends uh, who are elsewhere in the world and as they explain the cross to their children, they put it like this, it's always stayed with me. They say, we deserve to hang there and die. We deserve to die eternally for our sin. And yet the Son of God left the glories of heaven to die for us. No one has started so high and no one has ended so low. And he did that, friends, because his mindset was to obey the will of the Father. And so, as Paul uses Jesus' example here, he's saying to each of us tonight, have the same mindset, have the same attitude as Jesus Christ in your obedience to God in everything, but particularly in your pursuit of humility and unity. Now that's so important because in our day, as we hear all these voices around us, there are thousands of voices crying out to us in the world, telling us things like this. They're telling us we deserve better. They're saying that you know, when you're living in the people of God and you're seeking, seeking to live in the church, think about number one. Think about yourself above others. And Satan wants us to think that way because that way the church gets torn apart because everyone goes in different directions because they're only interested in their own interests. But what did Christ do? Did Christ consider whether he deserved better? No. He could have made the same case. He was the only one who could say, I deserve better because he he is and was the eternal God. And yet he didn't do that, friends. No one started higher. No one went lower. And this challenge to be focused on ourselves and to be selfish is so powerful in our day. If if the devil has a toolbox of tools where he grabs the most effective one to challenge us as Christians, I believe this this self-centred attitude is one of his most powerful ones that he deploys in the church today. And it's destroying churches, it's destroying families, it's destroying friendships, it's destroying communities. 
because we only care about number one. And friends, we have to consciously reject that self-centred, self-focused worldview. And when you do that, that transforms the way conflicts are resolved. We all have conflicts because we're all sinners and we get things wrong and we upset one another and we say things we shouldn't say and we do things we shouldn't do. And if we had the attitude of Jesus, if we had a, the attitude of Jesus Christ, then those conflicts would come to an end. But instead we say things like, well, I'm not doing anything before they apologise first. Is that the mind of Christ? When God says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And we think, well, to achieve unity would take too much from me. That would ask too much of me. It's going beyond what was reasonable. Did Christ think of what was reasonable? Did Christ consider what was reasonable? If he had done that, where would we be? We would still be on our sins without hope and without God in the world. And so Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now we turn more briefly to consider verses 9 to 11. We've looked at what Christ did to learn from his mindset of obedience to the Father. And now we come to look at what the Father did for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 9 to 11, in the second half of the passage, we hear what God the Father did following Christ's obedience. And here we see the reward given to Jesus for his obedience. Now, as we read these verses, do not think that what is happening here is that Christ is becoming something more than he already was and is, because he can't be, because <laughs> he's fully God and equal to the Father. But, but rather, and do not think that he is achieving a, a higher position than the Father or the Spirit. That's not how we should think about this. What is being told to us here is that there is a new display of the glory of the Son because of his work of salvation. Not that he becomes more than he was eternally and will eternally be, but that we see his glory more clearly because he has worked this salvation. And God chooses to display his glory, particularly in the Son. That's what Jesus says in John 17. If you have a Bible, John 17 verses 4 and 5 are important to see here. Where Jesus says, John 17, beginning in verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That's salvation. That's the salvation plan. And what does he say? And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the glory of Christ is seen 
is displayed because of his work of salvation. And look at the glory. If we go back to Philippians chapter 2 and begin in verse 9, we see that he is given the supreme position. Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He has highly exalted him, not just exalted him, highly exalted him. He has a supreme position that after his life and death and resurrection and ascension, where is he? He has ascended into heaven, enthroned in heaven, in the highest place. Supreme position, but not only that, he has a supreme title, end of verse 9, and has given him the name that is above every name. Now, you and I know that our name is tied to our identity. That's why it matters that someone remembers your name, because it communicates to them, that sorry, to you, that you matter. And so when someone can't remember it, or forgets it, or gets it wrong, we feel a bit grieved and, and put out, because we know that our name matters. And there's, a, there's, in some sense, a right sense to that, because our name is tied to our identity. And so Christ is given a name above every name. He is given the supreme title, supreme position, supreme title. But not only that, look at verse 10. We have supreme honour that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And you see how that's kind of a that's what we talk of as an all inclusive statement, because you have heaven, earth. And under the earth. That's everywhere possible. Christ, supreme honour in every element and every sphere of this creation. All people, all created beings, all angels. If it has a knee, it will bend. If it has a back, it will be horizontal. Because it will bow before Jesus Christ. Supreme honour. But then notice also, lastly, supreme confession, verse 11. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that title, Lord, means king or sovereign. And notice it says there, every tongue should confess that he is Lord. So not just say it, it means Say it. Not just say the words, it means mean the words. That he is Lord. That he is King. And so Paul says, because Christ obeyed the will of the Father, he is given supreme position, supreme title, supreme honour, and he received supreme confession. That is the present status and position of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper says that Christ is the apex, that is the most visible display of the glory of God. I think that captures well what Paul is saying here in verses 9 to 11. And Christ's glorious, exalted, majestic status as Lord has unending implications for our lives. It means that I will worship him as Lord 
in everything. And it means that I will not worship anyone else as Lord. In my heart, in my speech, and in my life. I will stop bowing down to false lords, wherever they may be. If they're in the crowd, I will not follow the fads and fears of my friends rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. I will bow down to him. If it's in the world, I will not memorise the lyrics of pop stars rather than memorise the word of God. I will not, as I think about sporting heroes, obsess over the statistics in fantasy football rather than obsessing over the truths of God's word. And when it comes to lifestyle gurus, I will not hang upon their every word of instruction for my life. I will hang upon every word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no one greater and there is no name higher than the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means he gets all of me in everything all of the time. And if you're a believer this evening, it means he gets all of you in everything, all of the time. And then your life and my life are governed by this one great truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. One of my heroes, C.T. Studd, put it in a way that I certainly can't beat. When he said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So friends, let me ask you and let me ask me, where is it in your life that you need to bow? Before Christ. Don't bow down to anyone or anything else. Bow to Him because He alone is worthy. Amen. Shall we pray before we sing?